pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. She is an assistant professor, online pedagogy and workplace learning in the Faculty of Education at the University of Windsor in Ontario. She is Dr. Bonnie Stewart, author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled Hybrid Learning, Teaching Kids in Person and online at the same time robs children of quality education. Dr. Stewart, Bonnie, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. It's great to have you with us. What does online pedagogy mean, Bonnie? It's really just um, a collection of ways of thinking about learning online. So what are good practices for learning when you have this environment, the internet, that really changes the game in terms of, of what it means to teach, right? So we've, most of us who trained as teachers, I trained in the 90s as a teacher, I did not learn how to teach online. It right. was about working within the four walls of the classroom, um, using certain tools and methods for engaging kids, right? Not just getting content into them, but also um, making sure that they felt cared for, connected to the school environment, connected to each other, building some sense of community in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You can do some of those things online, but you need to do them differently because the platform's different, the tool's different, and you need to set different kinds of expectations. So that's what online pedagogy is, is thinking about that whole collection of strategies for good teaching. Since you were uh, uh, went into teaching uh, in the 90s and learned the craft in those days, have times changed so much, Dr. Stewart, that there are now actually young people entering the teaching profession with a full expectation that their entire career could possibly be spent teaching exclusively online? I would say that starting about now, we may see some of those students coming into our, to our Bachelor of Education programs. I've been teaching in education for the last, on and off for the last 20 years, solid for the last 10. And until now, no. I teach the digital technology type courses. Often students come in thinking, I'm really good on my phone, mm-hmm. but how do I do this in a classroom? Sure. Um, that's more been the look. But I do think the huge pivot that we've made online over the last couple of years may start to change some people's perspective in terms of how they approach the career. Let's talk a little bit about even just the, the, the title of the object, the article. As soon as I saw it, as I was flipping through, and I go to the conversation every week, uh, this one just jumped right off the page and bit me on the nose. Uh, because it, it's, I mean, we're only a couple of weeks away from going back to school. And as I mentioned earlier, in the United States, some jurisdictions are already back at school. And the concerns yeah. here range, of course, from the safety of our children, their teachers, and the staff personnel at the schools. But we also now are talking about how do we make up ground for time that was lost last year while they wandered around on the internet trying to figure things out? Uh, <laughs> do, do we write that off? Do we, do we uh, just discount an entire year? Uh, how do we make it up? Uh, and at the same time, you're talking about the reality of, of the platform I- itself. If you're trying to do, if you're the teacher and your class is divided into half in the room and half at home on their laptops, that's a chore and a half. And, and I can see you, you say simply that approach robs your word, robs children of quality education. How? Well, in a sense, it's really it's teaching two classes at once. Yes. Right. All of us, um, no matter what you do in your life, you build skills to be good at your craft, your um, your science, your art, whatever it is. Um, 
being forced to do that in two separate ways at once is always going to be twice the work for whoever's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about even if we said that all the job of a teacher um, is is to keep kids, you know, present and engaged. I don't know. Do you watch like Jimmy Fallon or Graham Norton or one of those late night talk show guys? Mm-hmm. Some of them do it very, very well, right? They are able to have a, a deep, engaging, connected conversation with the person right in front of them, make that person feel like they are the only person there at that moment while thousands, millions of their dearest friends are tuned in and listening. That is a real skill. You are talking to a ton of people out there right now, mm-hmm. but you're also not responsible for having 20 of them sitting in front of you, making sure that they aren't stabbing each other with pencils <laughs> and that they're doing their math at the same time, right? So that, that sense of how you broadcast and communicate to a big audience or a distant audience and how you teach and connect with an audience that's right in front of you, even just from an kind of an, a media theory perspective, audience-wise, you're doing two different things. Sure. When you are not just responsible for keeping people entertained, but for actually teaching them stuff, doing that involves two totally different sets of strategies for how you get them engaged in a classroom, right? Particularly in the younger grades, you don't want to be just, we don't lecture at kids in the fourth grade. That's right. right? We get them involved in doing things. And sometimes that involves paper and pencil, talking to the seatmate next to them, whatever those strategies are, they are built on the tools available within the four walls of the classroom. Very, very different tools are available for online learning. Mm -hmm. And you really can't set up two separate activities at the same time and have kids have an equitable or similar experience. So if you're going to teach hybrid, then you've got to really use the, um, the online learning tools, even with the kids in the classroom. And you can do it. But it's funny, in the Ontario context, right, we've had, um, we went into the pandemic in a situation where our provincial government had been in strike conversations with our two biggest teachers unions, mm-hmm. the, the two biggest teachers unions in Canada, um, for months beforehand. So we went in from a fraught situation. And the teachers set all that aside, have done the very best that they can. But this is um, a huge amount of labor and work for teachers to try to to learn a whole new world of online pedagogy or online teaching in a year. A lot of families and, and parents are like, look, last year was just fair, right? And fair enough, it was. I have two kids. They, they were in Ontario schools last year. Their teachers tried really hard. The mandate from our provincial government that they had to do six hours a day of real-time sort of synchronous learning with the teacher talking live with the students meant that a lot of students kind of tuned out in that. No kidding. Teachers com- well, the teachers competing with Netflix in the next tab, with Fortnite, with, with all the things the that dog. the dog do when they're sitting <laughs> in the room. Exactly, right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, none of us is Jimmy Fallon, let's be clear. That's right. Um, but, but nor should a teacher have to be. When we have kids in the classroom, you have ways of getting attention and ways of building the sense of we are here now and doing this that are really different from what's available online. No online pedagogy expert would ever have recommended that they do six hours of synchronous a day. When you're doing that and you're doing it in the classroom, but trying to broadcast it 
to students who are at home, what you've got is a situation where even families that have decided, look, online learning wasn't for my kid. It, they were disengaged, whatever. I'm sending them back to the classroom. In boards that have had to choose the hybrid model, the classroom that their kid is sitting in is going to be using online learning methods, probably with a teacher who's fairly inexperienced at online learning. Sterling Fox joined on the line by Dr. Bonnie Stewart, uh, who teaches teachers in the Faculty of Education at the University of Windsor in Ontario. Uh, Dr. Stewart also wrote a piece at theconversation.com, which you can read, entitled Hybrid Learning, Teaching Kids in Person and Online at the same time, robs children of quality education. And she goes on to say, the hybrid learning plan for schooling in the COVID-19 pandemic is more about politics than what's best for kids. And then Dr. Stewart goes on to talk about nickel and diming education, refusing to reduce class sizes, and how teaching kids isn't about delivering content and the bottom line bonnie is that this whole approach as you see it is more suited to adult learners than children ever yep (laughs) so that's 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 a mouthful and it's a great article and you do clearly have some strong views on this and yet here we are a matter of days certainly weeks away from returning to school in all corners of canada and some Uh, jurisdictions are going to end up with some kind of hybrid solution to uh, returning to class this fall. And those uh, those solutions will involve children from ages kindergarten right through to grade 12. And as you point out in your article, this this uh, hybrid model that we have pivoted to out of necessity is really something that was developed by teachers for adult or young adult learners. Correct. It's true. Um, I think it's important to be clear about what we call hybrid learning. In Ontario, the term is relatively new. It's emerged in the last year. Hybrid learning in my field, which is online pedagogy, teaching people online, used to mean using a mix of um, face-to-face methods and online methods um, and synchronous methods and sort of not real-time methods to engage people. So designing a course that was a mix of different strategies. Over the last year, what it's come to mean is teaching two classes at once, Mm -hmm. one that's right in front of you, one that's online. Um, And that's specific. I don't know if the term is being used in BC in the same way, but that's how it's being used in Ontario. It comes out of a model that was designed in BC, actually. Um, That's called HyFlex. HyFlex, right. Mm -hmm. In higher ed. I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Uh, But it was very much meant for graduate students, folks who are adults fully invested um, and may have work childcare responsibilities that keep them from being able to attend the class face-to-face all the time, right. but who have that sort of fully invested, non-mandatory learning kind of, um, what would you call it, I guess, uh, buy-in to their course experience. That we have a mandatory K-12 system. We do not expect second graders to be, you know, completely like, this is my life goal um, when, when they come to the classroom. So it's, it's a different setup. And the core of high flex was the flex piece that people have the choice. When we're talking about hybrid learning in the Ontario context, we are not talking about flex or choice at all. Mm-hmm. The only choice that's available is really right at the start of the year. And often in many uh, jurisdictions, in many boards, families have had to decide months ago, back yeah. in May, June, what do you want? Do you want your kid to be online or do you want your kid to be face-to-face? Sure. 
the thing that I think is important where I say this is political, it's hard for families to make those decisions months in advance because we don't know right now even what the pandemic is going to look like in our individual towns and cities three weeks from now in schools. That's true. Right? Everybody wants kids to be safe. Everybody wants kids to be able to get an education. This is tough. The whole pandemic has thrown education across the world into dealing with different kinds of online options and decisions without having been fully prepared for it. Full stop. It's not easy, I'm sure, to govern in this context, but there are policy and training and funding options available to different governments. Those are the political pieces right. that, that are really shaping this. And, right? the and the funding decision, for example, that the same teacher who teaches the group in front of him or her in the classroom is also teaching the rest of the class online, that one job being taken care of by one instead of possibly two teachers, that is a funding and political decision, isn't it? It's absolutely a funding decision because it's a lot cheaper to have a whole group of kids with a teacher in the classroom and broadcast that to a whole group of kids at home. Now, right. most of us who have kids would, would not say, yes, I totally want my eight-year-old to be in a class of 50 kids. We'd be like, no, no, no. But with hybrid, we are asking teachers not necessarily to take on 50 kids, but to take on the equivalent of two jobs at once. Mm-hmm. Right? They're, take, they're teaching two classes at once. And the thing is, Hybrid wasn't mandated by our provincial government. What happened was last year in 2020, for the most part in Ontario, school boards were funded to have separate virtual um, schools. Sure. Whole separate infrastructures with principal and teachers and all those things. This year, in the context of the pandemic, our Ministry of Education announced that we're actually going to lose $12.3 billion out of our funding uh, coffers in education over the next eight years. That's that's their plan. Mm. Um, and that means that the boards either often have to draw on their reserve funds. They Some of them had to get like legal permission to go into reserve funds just to make sure that they were running virtual schools last year. And so a few experimented with hybrid last year and more have decided, look, we have no option. We are choosing hybrid for this year simply because we don't have the funding. That's right. We can't afford any other options. We can't afford any other options. And the government has said you need to have a virtual option. We're just not going to fund it. In that sense, it's political. There's a whole play, right? Um, If you set something up and say, listen, we're going to uh, defund this field, whatever it is. Then we're going to show you how broken it is. Look, then we can sell you the solution to that. That is a privatization model. It's been used since Thatcher in the UK um, in all kinds of public fields. And to an extent, that is what feels like what's going on in Ontario right now. Interesting. Can I change the topic for just a second? Because we're almost mm-hmm. out of time, and I'm very curious about your thoughts on this. As a lot of it, and I sent you a piece that I saw yesterday in the New York Times that was sort of an American take on a very Canadian concern, Dr. Stewart. As our kids go back to school in a couple of days or a couple of weeks at the most, a lot of moms and dads are concerned about what they lost last year. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the the piece in, in, in the New York Times 
Times was, does it hurt children to measure pandemic learning loss? Is it important to, is it more important to parents or teachers or kids uh, to, to figure out what it is they have lost and try and make that up? Do we need to quantify that? I saw the piece. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I think children lost a lot last year. I agree. I'm not sure that the learning loss conversation is actually the most helpful one, right? Learning isn't a bucket that you fill. Kids are not buckets. Learning is not a counting noun. I can't say we have six learnings. Um, Definitely. Some subjects have foundational ideas. My elder kid was in grade eight at the start of the pandemic. They basically didn't do math. We had quadmasters here for their grade nine year last year. So they didn't start math again until May of 2021. Wow. Okay. 14 months without math. Sure. And, you know, there were some skills that definitely got super rusty. But what got way more rusty were practices, confidence, engagement in education. And I think a lot of what was really dangerous that happened last year was this disengagement that happened for kids with the idea that learning is something that they can do. Some kids are dropped right off the school rolls. They're, they're out somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot more kids are there. They're, they're going through the motions of logging in for their six hours a day, but they are completely checked out because sure. nobody has the attention span to sit there and listen to a teacher in an attention economy where Netflix or Fortnite are tabbed <laughs> away. That's right. Pretty um, stiff competition. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about measuring learning, there's two pieces. There's, there's can we grade? And I, mean, I, grade, I grade my students. I build rubrics that try to be fair, et cetera. But then there's the whole further idea, and it's political as well, that everything that is valid needs to be measurable. Um, that often comes from, again, that same perspective that has something to sell. If I can sell parents the idea that there's this learning loss and we need to test that, I can sell ways to test it. I can sell solutions to that problem, but that isn't actually going to re-engage kids in the process of learning and in the experience of learning. The challenges. I'm sorry. I think it makes more sense to focus on how do we advocate for funding the best um, situations that we can create in our local jurisdictions for getting kids hopefully safely back to school and maybe also doing a lot of PD for teachers to still try to up their game with online tools in case, as we did in Ontario last year, we have to go offline or we have to go out of school and online at some point. Now, we're a little apprehensive this morning here in British Columbia. As Dr. Bonnie Henry was uh, quoted overnight as saying, you know, it's entirely possible our next uh, Freedom Day here is September 7th. That's when we hit phase four of the restart or the re- loosening of restrictions. And she just said yesterday, it's quite possible that's not going to happen in British Columbia on schedule. And it's simply a, a medical or a COVID reality. So, again, the challenges uh, facing teachers, to say nothing of their parents, uh, going back to school this fall are enormous. And I would think number one, especially from the point of view of the teacher, is re-engagement. Dr. Bonnie Stewart has written this fabulous piece at The Conversation, friends. I highly recommend it. It's hybrid learning, teaching kids in person and online at the same time robs children of quality education. It's a quality read, provocative stuff. Dr. Bonnie Stewart from the University of Windsor in Ontario has been our guest. Thank you so much for this, Bonnie. It's been a real pleasure. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. Kirk LaPointe is joining us. Mr. LaPointe is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. He is also vice president editorial of Glacier Media. Kirk is also a former mayoralty candidate for the city of Vancouver. And full disclosure, a former colleague of mine on, as the saying goes, another network. Kirk LaPointe, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. I, I actually don't remember 1961. Sorry. <laughs> nice try. Nice try indeed. So you wrote this great piece uh, in, the, uh, in, in one of your Glacier papers. I picked it up out of the North Shore News uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I've actually quoted you uh, from this particular piece three times. I've used the same paragraph this three, three times. Let me use it again and then for your quote, and you can run with it from there. A minority government is a message to collaborate. It's supposed to run its course properly, not just when it suits its largest participant. This election call has the strange feel of sabotage of that institution and self-sabotage of Trudeau's own hard-earned pandemic image. Needless commotion when polls show the country wants calm. More troubling to think about, what is it the Prime Minister fears in further waiting? What does he know that we don't. Well written, Mr. LaPointe. I immediately went to that lab in Winnipeg, missing personnel, and all the efforts the government of Canada has gone to, so the the incredible contortions they've gone through to make sure that you and I and no one in this country knows anything about that file, and that's just one. Uh, so let's talk about the election nobody wants. It is an election nobody wants, but uh, that, oh, except of course, for Justin Trudeau and the people around him uh, in order to get uh, to try to get their majority. And, and it is it has become in the early days of the campaign still uh, a bit of a defining issue for the liberals. And I think what they're finding and if I've talked to a few people who uh, are in their ranks, um, they're finding that when they start going to the doors and when they start phoning people and talking about the election that this is something that is resonating with people which is you know why did you do this why did you spring this election on us there was no necessity for it at all and uh, and we need you know we don't need the distraction of an election campaign while we're still into the fourth wave you know the fourth wave of the pandemic that uh, stands every bit of uh, chance of doing it sorry i'm sitting out of my porch here and you can hear uh, hear the geese going by me um, <laughs> but yeah uh, but but yeah, there's so there's a there's there's really uh, been no need for it, and and um, and I think it you know usually when these things happen, uh, Sterling, the issue fades at some point. People begin to understand what the issues are. Right. But this one this one has the threat of hanging on a lot longer, uh, because because in this case here, um, it's it's his you know it's his partner in the uh, minority government, uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP, that is going to make. Um, I think the greatest gain out of all of this, um, and by by demonstrating that really there was no need to try to to go to the polls. I think you're right. I think, and so far, and you're right. We're very in the very early stages, and we're in the part of the process that I think most parties are gambling on will be the sort of light end of of the of the the uh, process, and, and they're not really expecting the country to hunker down and focus even slightly on this until after Labor Day. But even at this early stage, Kirk, uh, Mr. Singh is all over television telling everybody who will last long enough in the commercial that this is absolutely unnecessary. What on earth is going on? Yeah, of course, you know, let's be clear, Mr. Singh didn't have the same issue when John Horgan went 
to the polls in the middle of the pandemic last year. Oh, you, you noticed know, that, as, did you? Huh? As a, you know, as, as a, a fellow NDPer. That being said, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that happens typically with an incumbent government is that it loses a bit of altitude in a um, in a campaign. Sure. And so what the Liberals, I think, are fearing is that maybe they they have peaked right now. And and then what you start to get uh, are people using this one issue as as, you know, more ammunition to dump them or more ammunition to move away. And I think that what we're seeing in the early days is the attempt by Aaron O'Toole to identify what you would call progressive conservative issues mm-hmm. economically. And and if he can identify those, uh, you know, issues that are going to help small businesses, issues that are going to help families with their with their finances, issues that will, uh, you know, that will take a look at uh, at some of the spending that's going on, um, Main Street issues. If he can do that and shed some of the social conservative baggage that that uh, keeps a lot of swing voters, a lot of people on the fence from coming over to him. You know that's the that's the nightmare scenario for the liberals, which is that their you know their brand is tired and faded, and somebody else has found a way to identify exactly the cohort that they've been after and that they they actually successfully captured in 2015 and a little less so in 2019. And don't you think the liberals are as nervous as I think you're suggesting they are already because they've already rolled out the social conservative issues, the abortion issue and everything else. They're already right there. They've got their their pet reporters peppering Mr. O'Toole with all of the predictable abortion questions and everything. He needs to package that thing up and get rid of it in the first week of the campaign. But the fact that it's been trotted out this early by the liberals would suggest a certain real fear. Yeah, you know, any time that you, you kind of bring uh, the most fearsome issues uh, to the fore very quickly, it's an indication that you, you actually have some real concerns about your opponent. Um, but, but that said, you know, Mr. O'Toole has had his own troubles here, which is, number one, he, you know, he, he, he cannot really subdue his caucus properly to keep these questions from resurfacing time and again mm-hmm. you know the every party sterling as you know has like it's you know it's it's bad children so to speak um but but the conservatives seem to have the biggest trouble in keeping them quiet when you know when important times come and um and so in, in, to some degree mr o'toole is is stuck with that um the second thing of course is that it did not help him at all um, to to have his uh, you know his his strategist roll out that really insane puerile video um, of Justin Trudeau uh, you know on, oh, from Willy Wonka Willy, yeah the Willy Wonka and the yeah. chocolate factory thing that, that was that was <laughs> embarrassing for everybody and then and then lastly I mean it, it, he he also has been very ambiguous about whether his candidates are vaccinated which you know again. Um, you know, it does not assure people that he might have run the pandemic, um, you know, in a way that was uh, probably emphasizing public safety um, as opposed to personal choice. And and again, that that just stirs a little bit of uncertainty in the minds of some voters about what kind of leader would he be? Would he be so accommodating? Of, of the social conservatives 
um, to, you know, to really move the country into this area and engage with it when it came time for legislation or, or for policies. And, and that's where I think um, he's got some work to do, because the Liberals have done a better job, in a way, presenting him than his own team has. Um, and, and you don't want your opposition defining you. You want to define yourself. Our guest is Kirk LaPointe, editor of Business in Vancouver, who wrote an opinion piece a couple of weeks ago entitled Trudeau Pawns PM Credibility for Pandemic Political Opportunism. And Kirk, he had an abundance of evidence to suggest that this might work. There was a successful provincial election during COVID in Newfoundland and Labrador. And of course, as you've already referenced, one very successful outing for Horgan and the ND here in British Columbia. So off he goes, and it just no no sooner does the writ get dropped than the the, the provincial election on underway in New Brunswick backfires, and the liberal incumbent, the new guy, Rankin, uh, lasted, what, four months on the job and got bounced. The people of Nova Scotia decided, no, this is a little too opportunistic, and no, we don't think you should be reinstated, and that was the end of that. Could that happen to Justin Trudeau? Sure, it could. Uh, I mean, because, again, governments tend to defeat themselves. They they don't tend to be defeated. And um, when you begin to, to exhibit something a little bit like hubris or arrogance about uh, the entitlement that you have to the office, uh, and you're prepared uh, to to basically risk it, um, in something as uh, as you know, once in a lifetime as the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, it it jars people. I mean, I think I think when John Horgan did it, um, again, uh, their their issue was that the BC Liberals were in quite a lot of disarray, and so you don't have the same disarray across the aisle with either the Conservatives or the NDP. Mm-hmm. They, they you know their their ships are in in pretty decent shape. The Conservatives uh, you know have more work to do in terms of introducing their leader but uh but you know you you don't have that same situation that you had in uh, here in in british columbia and yes in nova scotia uh, premier rankin uh, you know really found out just how uh you know how fickle people can be in a hurry if, if it looks like you test them um you know and and i think the, the bigger thing the, the thing that m- most worries me is as a voter and as someone who hasn't made up his mind yet on how he's going to vote is is you know what what is what is the prime minister really thinking about all of those matters that he has uh, you know signaled are his priorities when he's prepared to kind of risk them all no sooner than introducing them through budgets and and other measures mm-hmm. he's prepared to risk them all so quickly when he doesn't actually have to i mean when when he can wait a full two more years in order to go to the public, you know, what does it? What does that say about his actual commitment when he can be almost distractible like this? And and uh, and I think that, that that's the thing that can, uh, can worry a lot of people as well. Which is, you know, did he really mean what he was saying and what policies he was proposing, or or was that just simply the planning for an election? And and uh, and so it, it doesn't have the same depth of meaning. Interesting stuff. And for some, uh, the Green Party will be a safe place to park the protest vote once again because they've decided to self-destruct just in advance of an election over, of all things, Palestine. And once again, uh, will be going absolutely nowhere. This to the advantage distinctly of the NDP, don't you think? 
Yeah, the, the, the hazard for the NDP, though, is that it, it, it can, you know, any kind of protest votes that get parked with the Greens would have, might have been votes for them. Um, and and certainly, it certainly would have been votes for the uh, for the liberals as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's been a sad situation because I think um, in the case of the Greens, uh, there was again an opening there in the same way there was provincially for them. Uh, you know, there was a bit of a window there to yes. you know, to galvanize the public around uh, the critical issues that it, it has been at the forefront of. And one of the problems, of, of course, with with the Greens in this case, is that uh, the Liberals have largely usurped some of their issues. Indeed, and and uh, and so they don't quite stand out in the same way. And when they have their own internal political troubles uh, as a party, uh, that just you know has has ruined it for this election. You made a point that I, I tend to agree with, and I think a lot of Canadians would as well, Kirk. We tend not to vote for parties. We tend more to vote against parties. We like to throw parties out rather than bring parties in. Is that going to be the mindset for most voters this time around, do you think? Well, again, uh, Sterling, it has, it has much to do with whether the Liberals are able to, uh, to double down and to find uh, a kind of a new vision um, another version of their vision uh, to sell the country on this time around, because they've they've exhausted themselves, I think, of ideas um, during the pandemic in terms of the relief that have been provided. You can start to see that what we're getting this week in the way of promises are, are almost like a, a grab bag of things mm-hmm. that didn't quite make the cut in the last uh, you know 16 or 18 months. And um, and so that's that's where it becomes a problem is that the the image gets a little stale, um, it gets quite repetitive. People have already rather made up their minds on Justin Trudeau over the years, and uh, and he can't really reinvent himself. And, and as you recall, last time he was under a great deal of duress um, for you know for the blackface episode, right, yeah. and and he had to reinvent himself a little bit on the campaign trail in order to assure Canadians that he was, you know, he was going to be that leader. Um, this time around, um, his image, which I think is, has generally been a favorable one during the pandemic, um, is something that, you know, the conservatives would do well not to, not to bother with. Don't, don't try to make him an issue, make their ideas the issue. Indeed. And, and then, and then they have, I think, a, a more solid opportunity to make gains. But, you know, I, I think as you take a look at it right now, it still feels very much like a liberal, you know, a liberal election to lose, not a not a liberal, uh, not a conservative election to be won. Balanced solutions to BC's old growth forest protection that best serves all British Columbians is possible, but it seems out of reach. This from a comment in the paper the other day entitled BC's forests deserve facts not fabrications. The commentary was written by our next guest. Bob Brash is the executive director of the British Columbia Truck Loggers Association, integral players in our province's forestry industry. Bob Brash, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to have you with us, Bob. Let's talk a little bit about the point that you made with your editorial the other day. It is possible to protect old-growth forests in British Columbia and do logging at the same time, and yet that possibility seems out of reach, and you base that seems out of reach, Bob, on a panel recently appointed by the government of British Columbia about the future of forestry. Tell us more, please. 
Sure. Uh, big topic. Uh, kind of where to start is the biggest question here. The, the panel was just one, one example um, uh, we brought up in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to old growth moving forward and what's going to happen to the forest sector. Right. In British, in British Columbia, just to start with, I mean, between sort of outright protected areas and, and something we called uh, old growth management areas, uh, you know, we've already got in BC probably equivalent to the size of Washington State protected. Um, so there's a lot of sort of uh, opinions out there right now about what to do with forestry and what to do with old growth protection and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Our con- our concern is that, um, you know, all the parties have to sort of be involved in those discussions, uh, including not only ourselves, but communities and, and other people that are dependent on the forest sector. So that that's just our concern right now. We, we're... Um, I guess we're nervous. Let's put it that way. Well, again, let me quote from the article that you wrote. As a follow-up to the recommendations from the 2020 Old Growth Strategic Review, uh, if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find the composition of the members of this panel, the Old Growth Technical Advisory Panel, dominated by Sierra Club affiliates and other individuals dedicated to old growth protection and vocally against any continued old growth harvesting. Now, you say you maintain in your opening statement that the possibility of a balance uh, protecting and logging is achievable. But under this group, with that sort of sentiment, Bob, it doesn't seem likely. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, the ultimate decision is going to be by government. And so, to be fair, this this group is going to sort of provide recommendations to government. Right. Um, so government, government will make the final decisions. But obviously, this group um, will have significant sort of sway and influence on what those decisions could be. And there, there will be a demand by society, and we get that. I mean, there's an emotional attachment to, to old growth, and the environmental groups have done a very good job of uh, sort of um, of getting that message out there. So there will be decisions made about old growth and what areas to protect, uh, and some of those decisions will be black and white. Right. Um, there's always a lot of gray area out there. And there are areas that uh, will be sort of uh, critically important for old growth protection. There'll be areas that'll be critical, critically important to sort of maintaining this forest sector moving forward. So you- uh, what we want is the opportunity to participate in those active type discussions before an actual decision is made. Right. Uh, and, and that's our concern is that some sort of short-term decisions may be made in the near future. Uh, so we hear. And if those short-term decisions are made, uh, inevitably they'll end up permanent. Um, and so that's our concern. We, did, we want to be involved right at the get-go. Well, now, this, when this panel was being formed, did you request or send any kind of uh, indication to the government that, uh, you know, it would be probably smart to include a representative from our sector of the forestry business? Did, was there any request to be included at all? Um, well, I mean, the Technical Advisory Committee was made, uh, the decision made by government to establish it, uh, and we didn't have any input into that particular decision to establish it. But yeah, I think we made it. I think we made it pretty clear over the months uh, that uh, we want to be involved in these discussions moving forward because, you know, we don't represent everybody in the forest industry. But between our association and other associations, I mean, there's you know forty thousand direct jobs in this industry, hundred thousand direct and indirect jobs. So, yeah, uh, hundred forty resource communities dependent on the forest sector. Uh, prospering and doing well. So yeah, we, we want to be involved for sure. 
Let me quote uh, more from the piece that you wrote, Bob. It's really a great piece, and this is why you're on with us today. A quick scan of the Office of the Registrar of Lobbyists of British Columbia demonstrates how frequently politicians and bureaucrats have been bombarded by these corporate environmentalists, apparently with open arms. If you ask those of us who are actually employed in the forestry sector how much of an opportunity we have been provided for real discussion and consultation... The answer is next to nothing. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the facts speak for themselves about how much, uh, how much contact the uh, environmental groups have had with, uh, with the government, and it's, it's lots. And, uh, of course, we're not privy to what happens precisely behind closed doors with those meetings and stuff like that. Right. Uh, but the record kind of speaks for itself, having said that. I will give credit to government. I mean, they do talk to us. I mean, it's not like we're in isolation here. But the issue is, you know, some talking and, and true sort of consultation and negotiation are two different, entirely different things. And that's our concern, is that we want to sort of move into those sort of real discussions about uh, what can happen. Because at the end of the day, the people that are going to deliver a successful force sector are not going to be the ENGOs. They're not going to be the sort of government. Who's going to deliver that is going to be, you know, the loggers, the entrepreneurs, and the investors in this sector. We may have some valuable information for government sure. on how that's going to succeed in the future. And uh, and uh, there are some things that will work and some things that won't work. And frankly, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, well, I'll use the word rhetoric, coming from many groups out there about this new paradigm shift that's supposed to happen in the forests of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you ask for substance on what they actually mean, um, well, it's pretty quiet, right? So. Yeah, back to the article, if you don't mind. Shutting down old-growth logging in B.C. will only move the supply to unregulated regimes, while homes and buildings constructed of any known alternative does not help the world's carbon footprint. Corporate environmentalist messaging doesn't mention this. They find it most effective to just keep saying no to everything versus realistic, long-lasting, and balanced solutions. The word balanced keeps coming up again and again, Bob, as you look for balance in 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 resolving all of this what sort of real appetite do you suspect the government of british columbia has for the sort of balance you're looking for oh i I think the government is pretty supportive of the fourth sector there's no doubt about that uh the question is you know we all have a different vision of what that sector should be moving forward and so that's that's going to be the tricky part of the discussion moving forward I mean, the forest sector logs on average, you know, I think one quarter of 1% of BC in any particular type of year. Mm-hmm. You know, do, do the math. I think there's time for us to have some serious negotiations about where we all correctly want to go in this, in this industry and, and where we want to get to. Um, and we don't have to do that overnight. Protect these very, very critical areas that uh, people are talking about uh, in terms of, you know, the, the majestic type old growth stands that people are talking about. Right. Uh, but after that, let's have a serious discussion about where this where this industry is going to go. And, and frankly, would I mean, I'm sorry, there's not too many homes made out of concrete or made out of steel that could compare it to wood in terms of its, you know, um, ability to sort of tackle climate change, the ability to be renewable, the ability to be sustainable. Um, you know, wood wood is a great product, and the world's going to continue to demand it uh, as we move forward. It is undeniable our forests are the source of the best options for sustainable products, addressing climate change, storing carbon, and responsible management. The world's need and desire for wood will not 
diminish. Well said, Bob. Uh, And this is the reality that the government is faced with. They've got to find some kind of solution that allows the British Columbia forestry industry to continue serving the world as it has for so long. And I mean, I I do have sympathy for government. I mean, they're in a tough position with some of the decisions they have to make here. Um, But, you know, I I think people, when they get in a room and try to talk through the issues, may find sort of more sort of common sort of elements than people think. Uh, But, you know, if we can't get in a room, that's going to be kind of difficult. And and for long-term solutions to work here, you know, as much as possible, we'll never convince everybody on whatever the strategy is. But as long as we can, you know, have the, the bulk of the population agree with this uh, this strategy moving forward, then it'll work. But but that means everybody sort of talking together. It's a Saturday morning, and it's game day for the Vancouver Whitecaps, and for the first time in 539 days, the game will take place in front of Vancouver Whitecaps fans downtown at BC Place Stadium. That was the signature music for the voice of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Always a thrill to welcome Corey Basso to CKNW Weekend Mornings. Hi, Corey. Live from BC Place, this is Saturday Night Vancouver. Welcome back, MLS. Thanks for having me, Sterling. Oh, it's great to have you with us. I, I knew you'd be up for this one. <laughs> it's I, I haven't heard you. I haven't heard you dozy yet, but I knew that you'd be totally stoked for this one. Now, uh, the the party, the street party, the warm up uh, party goes at two o'clock on Robson Street. There, the usual spot. Uh, doors open at five thirty this afternoon. Uh, kickoff is at seven o'clock. Uh, Corey, what are the other uh, limitations or bits of information fans need to know about that is going to be a little bit different going to the Caps game tonight. Okay, well, number one, if you see a gentleman drenched in beer with his shirt over his head, uh, waving around like a windmill, that's Sterling Fox, everybody. Don't worry, he's just a very excited Whitecaps fan. Um, and the second thing is, uh, more for the, the COVID restrictions, Sterling, which I know is what you're getting yeah, at. Eventually, um, I knew you'd get there, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I believe they will be doing temperature checks. They won't be checking for vaccinations. Uh, masks are recommended mm-hmm. but not re- required. Okay. And um, I know they'll be doing their best inside the stadium to block off certain sections of seats to make sure everybody's um, socially distanced and not everyone's just wandering around and treating it like it's a like it's a playground or anything like that. So they'll be doing their best to to keep it all buttoned up as well. And and we'll be doing the same in the media booth as well. Masks. Mm-hmm recommended but not required and once again no vaccination checks and just doing their best and everyone's got to pull the rope in the same direction to make sure everyone's socially distanced and everyone can have a great time today we can do it all over again in a couple a couple weeks and keep on going with it well that's right now uh, free t-shirts tonight uh, free scarves to the first uh, white hundred well, first hundred fans wearing white cap jerseys uh the pop-up vaccination clinic also out us uh, out front of the terry fox plaza kicks off at two o'clock conveniently the same time as the warm-up part and I know the Lions did this a couple of nights ago, and they had quite a few customers at that pop-up vaccination clinic, Corey. So that could happen again for the Caps tonight, too. And very positive stuff. I mean, I don't know if the White Caps. I believe the Lions were handing out some free tickets or some kind of swag to mm-hmm. That's entice right. people to get their, their shots if they if they hadn't had so yet. So yeah, if you're if you're in the market for a shot and you still want to get and you're still uh, looking to get it ahead of the game, I don't think it's going to hurt. So sit down, get the jab, and then. Go inside, grab yourself a seat, and enjoy some MLS soccer. And I know it's it's a great little routine there that they've got going, especially the lines as well, to uh, to encourage the vaccinations there. And yeah, enjoy yourselves, people. Enjoy responsibly. I know it's been a long time, and 
it's going to be a fun day today. I'm, I'm buzzing already. I know it's, I'm always buzzing because it's 8 o'clock on a Saturday and we're, we're watching soccer and we're getting ready for the matches anyways, but something about today, it's going to be very special, I think. Well, no kidding. And very quickly here, Corey, uh, there are a lot of young members of the Vancouver Whitecaps team playing for the very first time in front of those crazy Vancouver Whitecaps fans. They must be as stoked as you are. No, absolutely, and that's that's weird to think. Then, I and the the numbers you were running down there over five hundred days. I believe it's over forty one matches without playing in front of your home crowd. And it's crazy to think that there's some players who have been here pretty much over a year and haven't been able to step foot on the BC Place turf. So that's it's going right. to be a new atmosphere for everybody. And it was something that Mark DeSantis was kind of talking about that he doesn't think it'll serve as a distraction. He, he'd spend a good part of the week making sure nobody's overly aw- overawed by the situation of playing in front of their new fans. But you're right, Sterling. It will be a new experience for some of them and on the BC Place turf will also be a new experience because they've been playing a lot of games on the road, on grass, so it'll be a, a new playing surface. It'll, it'll be a, a little bit of a litmus test for the, the rest of the season going forward. The Whitecaps need to make some hay. They need to win some home games. Now's the time. They're in a good spot points-wise. They're seven matches undefeated. they got a slew of new signings, including, including the Scotsman Ryan Gold, who's been pulling all the strings here. Will he start tonight? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he'll factor into the... Uh, the bench, at least. So, lots to look forward here for Whitecaps fans. Well, and, and and your first crack at the broadcast booth from BC Place. You and Colin have a great game tonight, Corey, and uh, and, and have fun because I know you all, I know you will. And thanks for this this morning, as always. Enjoy the matches, Sterling, and go on you Whitecaps, go on you Southsiders, go on you Curva Collective, go on you supporters. Let's have some fun tonight. We are joined now by Rob Williams, sports editor of the Daily Hive. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. We just had Corey Basso on, just out of his mind, excited about going to the Dome tonight to broadcast the first Whitecaps game in over 500 days. You were there just a couple of nights ago for the BC Lions home opener against Edmonton. Quite a buzz in the room, I'll bet. Yeah, it was great. I'm excited to go again tonight. And uh, yeah, it was just, um, I mean, the, the, the game on the field... Uh, uh, maybe it wasn't the most exciting game in the world. It was uh, only twelve and a half thousand people uh, at the stadium. Right. But boy, it was a good time. I mean, it was just fun being back into a stadium with fans cheering. Of course, I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, Canucks games this last season with uh, in, in empty rinks. And yes. Uh, you know, just not the same without fans there. So it really, uh, you know. It was it was just nice to you know get that little sense of normalcy uh, back in Vancouver for the first time in uh, a year and a half. Yeah, it was interesting timing too because uh, it would happen the day after the BC Lions announced their new owner. So uh, I mean, the timing is everything, and it it was happily coincidental, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, now I wonder how coincidental <laughs> it was. I'm sure the deal was in place for a little while. Could but, be. Uh, yeah, no, I thought I thought it was I thought it was great timing. Um, you know, if they if they if they uh, you know if they planned it artificially, I, kudos to them because I think that was uh, a great way to kick off the Lions being back in Vancouver. Um, you know, having having their new owner uh, Amar Doman uh, at the game. Right. Um, you know getting a bit of a buzz the day before. Uh, I think there's a lot of excitement now. Um, you know, the lines have been for sale seemingly forever. Um, you know, David Braley, uh, unfortunately passed away last year, but yes. I, I think that, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about the new owner. Um, but I, other than just his comments and his comments, I think we're, um, we're reassuring me. He, he seems like he's going to bring a bit more of a youthful energy. Into That's the right. Lions, and I think he's going in, 
eyes open. He, he's he's from BC. He knows uh, you know he knows the landscape, uh, and I think that'll help. Indeed, and, and uh, yeah, you're right. And he's and the team has acknowledged that over the last few years they've lost a lot of their the energy and the enthusiasm and support for the team in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of that has to do with lame marketing and uh, perhaps not the right emphasis on the right target audience. I think Mr. Doman is bang on, Rob. He's going to need to get a lot of young British Columbians excited about this team to make a go of it. And of course, the team has to follow up and uh, get a little flashier on the field. All of which is still plenty of room to come. We've only gone three games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, winning winning solves a lot of problems. Um, and for a while, I thought that that was maybe, you know, a really big reason why the, the Lions uh, uh, struggled to get attention. And, and they've, they have had some half-decent seasons mixed into those last uh, bunch of years where they've struggled to, um, you know, to really solidify their, their fan base. Uh, so I, I, the way I look at it is, there's an, you need every team needs an element of what the Vancouver Canadians have, and that is people like going to the games. They don't necessarily know anything about the players. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily, um, you know, they're not necessarily massive fans. They're not necessarily watching them when they're on the road, but they know they like going to the game and they get a positive experience when they're there. And that's something that. Um, the Lions, and for for that matter, the Whitecaps need to regain as well. Um, they now they don't have the advantage of playing in that beautiful Matt Daly Stadium. They, they they have to play in BC Place, which is not ideal, uh, but it's not the worst place to watch a game. Well, for and, sure, uh, they need to make it a fun place for young people to hang out with their buddies, uh, have a beer, <laughs> watch the game. Um, and be entertained by, you know, the, the game, hopefully, but also the things around the game, all that... Uh, the fan experience. Exactly. That's that's what it's all about. Indeed. Uh, only a minute here, and I wanted to get your comments on this, because we're just starting to see that the NHL is going to allow sponsor logos on hockey jerseys effective this fall. I know there have been a few trial runs in the past, so how soon will it be before hockey players start looking like pit crew guys from NASCAR, Rob? <laughs> oh, I hate it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a slippery slope, I think. Um, you know, I think... I don't think fans are going to be happy about it. It'll probably be a big, you know, uh, I don't know what logo they're going to pick there, but uh, to, to, I, I think a lot of people thought it was inevitable after last after the NBA did it a few years yeah. ago, and then and then hockey had it on their helmets last season. Uh, it was only a matter of time before they were going to put it on the jersey, but I, I think we're a little ways away from uh, it looking like the uh, Swedish Hockey League here with uh, <laughs> logos all over uh, the jerseys and pants and socks. Well, I hope so. Well, you know, it had to give somewhere, and of course, they all professional sports has taken a real financial bath in the last couple of years, so to, to allow them an opportunity to make some of that back up, you just really can't look too far sideways at some of their ideas. Thank you for this, Mr. Williams. Enjoy the Lions game tonight, and uh, we always appreciate your joining us here on the show. Anytime. Thanks. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.